As war loomed in Europe, the poet W.H. Auden left Britain for the United States. One of the poems he wrote just before leaving is about the nature of human suffering, or as Auden puts it, the human position of suffering. For the most part, it happens invisibly, and the procession of ordinary life leaves it unacknowledged. Yet the representation and transcendence of suffering are tasks important both to religion and the arts. Is suffering's human position something that can be redeemed? Today we'll be discussing Auden's poem, Musée de Beaux-Arts. This is Wes Alwyn. And this is Aaron Olanik. And you're listening to Subtext. So before we begin, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for The Partially Examined Life, we won't always be here and not all episodes of Subtext will appear here. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice, either by going to subtextpodcast.com slash subscribe or by searching for us within the app itself. I think probably the greatest lyric poet of the 20th century. Do you agree with that, Wes, or do you have a different view? He's often in the running, right, with Yeats and T.S. Eliot. Is that right? Yeah, but both of those two guys are just total garbage. So It's <laughs> <laughs> just not much competition. Just really not much Auden. there, there, you know? Um, <laughs> whereas Auden... Well, I would have trouble ranking them, but I could say... I'd love all of them. So I, someone wants to call him the greatest, I'm, I'm ready to go along with that. I'm kind of an Auden super fan. I have grad school. I studied with Angie Malenko, who's a poet and critic, who's also an Auden super fan and got the chance actually to take a, a like one-on-one tutorial with Angie on all of Auden's collected poetry and his essays. And Because you're such a big fan of The Tempest. Have you read The Sea in the Mirror, his long poem about the Tempest? Yeah, I mean, I read parts of it in preparation for this, and I want to read more. I have a book of collected poems that includes The Sea in the Mirror. And actually, I have a copy of The Sea in the Mirror that you gave me that I have oh, not that's right. yeah. yet read. I, I tend to give out Auden as <laughs> presents yes. for people. It was a good one. You know, my fondness for The Tempest. So yeah, I, uh, I've, only, I've only looked a little bit at it. You know, I'm looking forward to reading it. And I think we're going to be doing this poem which I'm not going to try and pronounce again uh, for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> and then we'll be doing September 1st, 1939 for our next episode. So we'll be doing these two Auden episodes in a row. And I'm, I've been looking at this collection of poems and getting through as many as possible. And I hope in the next two weeks I can read many more and uh, some biographical material and critical commentary as well. Yeah, the difficult thing for me when I uh, opened up my Auden books is that some of them are so heavily annotated that it's difficult to actually read the text at this point. <laughs> and the same thing is true for, for this poem today. But yeah, it's, so it's kind of, it, I, I'm wondering how this is going to go because I, I feel like it's going to be difficult for me to kind of weed through my Auden admiration in order to get to like, oh, right, what was he actually saying in these poems <laughs> instead of just, you know, the, the point that I've gotten to, which is like, you know, kind of out there with Auden. Well, I have 2,000 plus words of notes. <laughs> which, oh my. You know, for a poem that's how many words? I don't know, but not that many. I didn't have time to really retrace those notes and try and organize them. So I have a lot of random thoughts and I'm I'm, you know, I'm kind of anxious today about <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to put them together in a coherent way because I think there, there are things I'm confused about, different different ways of interpreting this. Hmm. This is, um, you know, a much anthologized poem of Auden's, obviously not quite as anthologized as September 1st, but it is one of my kind of surprising favorites of his that I do teach a lot to my students. 
and I, I kind of see it as something we could talk about, but it's interesting in your introduction that you you talked about World War II, because I think of this as being maybe the quintessential World War II poem. So we should maybe talk a little bit about that. So Auden had, had been in England, and he was traveling through the continent. He was in Brussels for a little while and uh, went to the Musée de Beaux-Arts in, in Brussels, which was the inspiration for this poem. But then on... The eve of World War II, he left um, England and settled in America. Um, and that transition had a really big effect on on his work, on his sort of self-conception as a poet. He was known for being kind of a wonderkind in England and also for having this persona as this um, sort of pu- public poet. He was known for being very liberal and he was interested and, and very involved in politics on the continent and in England, um, and then mm. sort of shifted gears when he came to America. So he shifts gears in terms of poetic style, right? At some point, he has a religious conversion of sorts. Or reversion. Um, he was a very devout teenager, actually, which he later attributed to just puberty. But <laughs> It's a reversion to Anglicanism, right? Yeah, his family were, they were very high church Anglicans, almost Catholic. And he was very interested in that ritual, that sort of high church sensibility. You know, as a public poet in England, he he was really engaged in liberal politics in his work. And later he really had a, a change of heart and seemed to think that artists had had no special insight into into politics or world affairs necessarily, that, you know, art gets nothing done that poetry is, in a sense, essentially frivolous. Yeah, poetry makes nothing happen, right? That's from his In Memory of W.B. Yeats, which is an amazing poem, one of the ones I did get a chance to read before this recording. And yeah, so poetry makes nothing happen. So he's, the the poem we're discussing might, in some ways, be expressing a similar sort of sentiment, but he, he seems to be despairing of the possibility of using poetry or using the arts to influence people or politics in a positive way. Mm. The impression I got just from the little secondary literature I read is that perhaps there's some connection between his departure for the United States and his, I was going to say disenchantment, maybe disenchantment with the political possibilities of poetry. Sure. Yeah. You know, he was also, I think, really interested in the sort of American vernacular, and he really liked Americanisms, which is something that we could talk a lot about in uh, in our episode on September 1. But let's, should we dive into the paintings a little bit and then use that as a jumping off point? Sure. So the poem is a, an ekphrastic poem. It's describing really three paintings by Bruegel, um, Landscape with the Fall of Icarus, and then makes reference to two other Bruegel paintings, The Census at Bethlehem and The Massacre of the Innocents. Should we maybe just describe landscape with the fall of Icarus? So maybe let's start with the the myth on which that landscape is based. I think most listeners are familiar with the the myth of Daedalus and Icarus, maybe not in great detail, but Daedalus actually turns out to be the one who designed the maze in which King Minos kept the Minotaur. So King Minos of Crete. And basically that maze was designed as part of his plan to take tribute from the Athenians, basically sacrifices that would be made to the Minotaur, young women and young men that the fairest and brightest uh, had to be had to be sent on every seven years, I think, to be sacrificed. So 
Minos imprisoned Daedalus to because he didn't want anyone to know about the maze. He wanted to keep it secret. And Daedalus comes up with this plan to escape the tower in which he's being kept with his son Icarus by making wings. So Daedalus is an artisan and he's going to, to put this to use. In Ovid's retelling of the of the myth, you get a, quite a bit of detail about the way the wings are made and the use of wax, the way the feathers are aligned. And then at a certain point, right, Daedalus tells Icarus, don't fly too close to the sun. Um, it teaches him how to fly first, makes him wings, teaches him how to fly, and says, don't fly too close to the sun or the sun will melt the wings and you'll fall into the ocean. Don't fly too low or the moisture will interfere with the wings and you'll fall. You got to take the middle way. There's a lot in Ovid's retelling, which is really interesting. So he's 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 very playful and nonchalant as his father's making making the wings. So he he kind of like the, as the down of the feathers is blowing past him in the breeze, he's kind of like catching at it like a child trying to play with bubbles. And uh, he sort of gets in the way of his father actually making these things. Hmm. So obviously, Icarus goes too high because he is. I think the way Ovid puts it is he's drawn by desire for the heavens. And then Ovid tells us that there's an angler catching fish and a shepherd and a plowman, and they all look up amazed, believing Daedalus and Icarus to be gods traveling in the sky and then see him fall. The reason why I go into so much detail there is that Bruegel's painting is full of so much irony, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the painting is really kind of a collapsing of the hierarchy of, of painting commonly accepted at the time. So you have your, your history poem at the top, which that would encompass mythological events as well. And below that, you have you know genre painting, like people performing everyday activities, you know, working the fields, whatever the case may be. And so in, in this painting, you have a sort of like a history painting inlaid, inset into a genre painting. So the focus of the painting is this plowman, um, the horse pulling the plow. He's plowing a field that's taking up the sort of bottom left of the painting. It's either an extremely tiny field or are we only seeing part of it? <laughs> well, it's very mannerist. It's like very, yes, very right. compressed and strange looking. And then below him on a sort of promontory is a, a shepherd with some sheep. And the shepherd is kind of looking up. He's in the very center pretty much of the painting. He's sort of looking up like he's seen something, but it's passed overhead and has landed behind him. So he's kind of looking in the wrong direction for w where it ultimately lands. And there's a big sea behind him and some ships on the ocean and a beautiful little landscape in the background. And and what has landed in the water behind him is presumably Icarus, whose feet are sort of flailing a little bit in the water. But it's very hard to even tell if you're looking at this painting for the first time that anybody is even in the water. And then there's you this. Gotta, you got to play the game of find Icarus. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. This is one of the first I spy books. Yeah, and then you only you only know it's him because you also see the feathers around him. Yeah, and the title. That's helpful. <laughs> but um, yeah, otherwise I wouldn't have known. And then there's this sort of little figure that's kind of fishing or something down near him. And, and then this big ship, which again, like the scale is really off. So Icarus is kind of big compared to this ship it's a little strange the uh yeah the perspective is quite skewed in many ways yeah 
one of the things about the painting is that it's a so it's a Bruegel painting, so it's anachronistic, right? So he's translated this myth. It seems like he's he's translated it into the contemporary world. That's one thing. And the other here is that it's full of irony. I think the, the main irony is that Ovid has described the plowman, the shepherd, and the angler. They're sort of there as the audience, right? They're sort of there to be astonished by mm-hmm. the adolescent Icarus and by the the great fall. And of course, they're not. They're ignoring it. The plowman is obviously doing his thing, and the angler, even though Icarus is flailing about in the water in front of him, is is ignoring that. He's doing something with his fishing. As you pointed out, the shepherd is looking away and upwards. I don't, I don't know if that means he's just seen something or... He he could be bird watching for all we know, but mm. which would be tremendously ironic. And then the sun is setting, right? So the yep. sun, which was supposed to have been the high in the sky and who to have caused the wax to melt, is actually setting. Alden interprets the ship as sort of, you know, a ship that could have come to Icarus's rescue, but it's it's kind of sailing on and, and ignoring him. So that's the wonderful uh, wonderful irony in this painting, and then the question is how one goes about understanding that. And that's what Auden's poem does so so beautifully. So shall we get into the poem or do, or do you think we should bother with the other two? They're both paintings, right? Instead of a mythological scene, it's a, they're biblical scenes, but again, translated into contemporary world of Bruegel. Though that wouldn't have been uncommon at this, in this time period for that anachronism. You know, most painters at this time were just translating it into the modern world. So I think the, the the other one, it's supposed to be relatively central to this. These are speculations because he doesn't mention these paintings directly in the poem, right. the way he mentions the Icarus painting. But it's pretty obvious he's referring to the census at Bethlehem. The biblical story is that everyone's being registered, right? Yes. That Caesar Augustus has said that everyone is to be registered and I guess for tracking purposes. I didn't know he had such a uh, kind of Stasi thing going on. <laughs> it was either that or you went to a dentist and got an implant. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, I don't think, we, I think listeners should look at the painting. We don't need to describe it in detail, except to say that Mary and Joseph are kind of being ignored by everyone and the ordinary tasks of daily life go on around her. And significantly, there are some children on a, on a little pond skating. That's the only thing you need to... <laughs> yeah, so this is the thing that Auden will make reference to there's lots going on in the painting that is sort of not paying attention to what you think would be the central subject of the painting and again you know the parallel to icarus here is that the three figures in icarus should be astonished and staring and pointing at daedalus and icarus but they're not and in this case of course it's similarly mary is being ignored yeah and then the same thing in the just in the other painting that he references the massacre of the innocents that has a lot of uh chaos and um, terrible things happening, but then there's just a horse that sort of, it's not scratching its behind against a tree, but it's just sort of like near a tree, sort of leaning leaning on it. It's unclear mm-hmm. which horse he was actually referring to because none of them are actually scratching their behinds on yeah. a tree. This is a very speculative attribution, but right, yeah, the, ma- the Massacre of Innocence also translated into contemporary times and it's, you know, Herod's decree to kill all what is it all the babies under two years old yeah all the boys i think try and get yeah the boys to get jesus so there's actually a version in which all the children are painted over because the king i forget which which king it was uh didn't thought it was too too graphic 
you, we can see other there are hmm. other versions of this available which show all the all the violence and and uh brutality oh wow yeah so it is truly a massacre of innocence the painting originally but it's very confusing if you look at the original because the original is painted over and the children have become bundles for instance or animals um hmm. so yeah so auden auden writes a poem about all this so Maybe it's time for you to recite it, yeah. Okay, here we go. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life, and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water, and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. I love the reference to the human position of suffering. I just, I, I love that phrasing. And that's the first thing where I'm sort of spitten with the poem immediately. For me, it's, it's just that odd phrasing of the very first <laughs> line running into the second about suffering. They were never wrong. The old masters, <laughs> there's something yes, like yeah. so unexpected and um, conversational about that. And this whole poem is just so extremely understated and uh, interesting and, and seems to be talking just to you or, or whoever is, is reading it at the time. What I love about the phrase human position is just the it's the use of a spatial word like position, which implies some amount of precision in reference to something that's more general and more, more abstract. So we're speaking of suffering in general, and we're speaking of the human. And then the word position locates that. I think that's really interesting because some of what the poem is about is the invisibility of suffering and the way life goes on without acknowledging it. But this use of the word position suggests it's it's somehow precisely located and concrete. And so perhaps it, it raises the question of whether that's true, whether it could be, whether it is there to be looked at, or if it's by nature mostly invisible to us, which I think we would probably lean in that direction, right? Most mm -hmm. of the suffering that goes on is just not visible. I love the irony of that and the way in it, that it poses a question up front. Yeah, and the the lack of specificity in the old masters is something kind right. of interesting too. He's really talking in particular about Bruegel here, and and in particular about this certain type of, you know, Flemish Netherlandish uh, painting, where you get these scenes of great multiplicity of tons of things happening, and and um, the these Flemish landscape paintings that he's drawing from, they sort of come out of their own interesting historical moment. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why these painters went to genre scenes and these large landscapes populated with lots of little people is because of the iconoclasm of Protestantism at the time. So they were not really depicting these the sort of grand biblical scenes the way that, you know, the Italians or the French or the Spaniards were at this time. Mm -hmm. The way in which the Flemish painters sort of 
opened up this this landscape and put all these little people all doing different things. It's it's uh, sort of like the representative to me of the burgeoning democratization of the world, you know, where they just are showing instead of like a central figure like Mary with the baby Jesus on her lap and then flanked by a couple of uh, important saints or, you know, the people who paid for the painting or whatever. <laughs> it's just this multiplicity of figures. There's just tons of activity and things that are happening. And, and, and ordinary people. Exactly. Yeah. Rather than, uh, you know, like Bosch, I think of as as being, um, you know, Bruegel's predecessor in a lot of ways. And he has these demonic carnivals that go on with, with lots of, you know, sick things happening and lots of, um, of intrigue going on. But in Bruegel, it's, it's more just like a bunch of random farmers, a bunch of uh, hunters, you know, lots of little animals, lots of little scenes happening. So democratization to me is kind of interesting. It's sort of reflective, I think, of, I don't want to uh, put too fine a point on this, but I think that this is something that Auden is maybe getting at here, that it's almost representative of um, of a society that's no longer homogenous, right? And directed all toward the same thing. It's it's more of a, a heterogeneous society, not bound by any common faith. Everybody's doing their own thing. Everyone's sort of self-interested and not particularly interested in what's going on with, with the other people around them. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a you know, a theme that Auden's going to get at in this poem. Well, and I think one of the interesting things about that is that you can see Bruegel's meta-commentary in all of this, which is to say that the artist's usual focus is on the saints or the important people or the big events, or the events of sacrifice and, and great suffering or disaster. And instead, his focus is on everyday people doing ordinary things, and then he inserts these <laughs> big, <laughs> supposedly big events in there, and no one is paying attention to them. In the, in the same way that artists typically, one might argue that, that artists hadn't paid enough attention to ordinary people. So if the Icaruses and Daedaluses of the world are representative of the artist in some sense, it's as if the subject of his art is ignoring the artist instead of being ignored by it. That's interesting. To me, it's almost like an aristocracy, which I, I suppose the artist is asserting himself as a member of um, by creating the painting. But yeah, it's like an, uh, you know, an overthrow of the important people. So you no longer put the, you know, the top dog in the, in the central position of the painting. You just sort of hide it in there and, and everybody else is, is equally a, a, as important for the purposes of, um, of the composition of the painting or even more important in the case of the plowman. You know, he is like the mm-hmm. biggest part of it. He and the horse's ass are <laughs> the two biggest parts of that painting. <laughs> it's kind of funny. You get this big horse's rear end staring at you, which is kind of a joke. But <laughs> So just to like quickly talk a little bit about the form, maybe. The curious thing about this poem is that you think it's going to be sort of normal. I mean, you, you get this sort of strange rhythm in the first few lines um, and a sort of kind of lopsided way of rather an unexpected structure to the to the sentence. The first three lines are ten syllables each. So you think, okay, it's gonna settle into pentameter maybe eventually. But then in the fourth line, it's seventeen syllables long. It's just so long. And then from there, it goes all over the place. The second mm-hmm. stanza is a little bit more regular. It's also a little bit more regular in its rhyme. So there is a rhyme scheme here, but the rhymes in the first stanza especially are are kind of far apart. Sometimes they're a little bit closer together, but some rhymes, like the E rhymes, I think are 
eight lines apart. So there's something there too, maybe this reflective of a kind of a alienation happening even in the form of the poem, perhaps. And so this fourth line that kind of explodes this expectation of, of pentameter is he describes what people might be doing while other people are suffering in this list of three things. And he says, while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. I just love that. It's such a strange list of three things, especially opening a window. Yes. Well, there's a lot of ambiguity in what all of this means, right? So in the beginning, it seems as if the argument is that other people's suffering is generally invisible to us. It, our, our lives go on. We ignore it. Often we don't even know about it. We might not know about it because it, it occurs you know, somewhere, somewhere else. It's not visible to us. Mm. We might not know about it because other people often just suffer silently. We're never told about, and we often don't tell each other about our suffering. We might not know about the suffering of others because of failures of empathy. And such failures are often caused by our focus on our own suffering. And that, strangely enough, seems to be the human position of suffering. It's the position seems to be that it's situated in a place of limited comprehension. It's not something that is generally comprehensible to others. And even in our moments of empathy, right, there's only so much that we can get about another person's suffering. We can't relive it. We can't take their experiences directly into us. So we're cut off from each other in a way. And this seems to be maybe even what the oddity of this particular list is getting at, right? Like it could be, we could be eating or opening a window or walking along or or doing any number of things. He sort of suggests an infinite number of possibilities of activities by only suggesting these three, mm-hmm. kind of in the same way that the painting just, you know, it could have had anyone in it doing anything or just the scale of, of Bruegel's paintings. Like it, there's the sense that he's just clipped off the edges of the world in this particular painting and that it just goes on and on and on and on, but he's chosen this particular little circumference to focus on. And that, I wanted to relate that back to what you were saying about the nature of suffering. So my experience of losing someone that I was really close to, a person who died, is that in the aftermath of that, I was very focused on the fact that no one knew about it, right? So I'd be walking down the street and I'd be thinking, no one else here knows about the death of this person. They're they're entirely indifferent to it. You know, my suffering isn't isn't relevant to them. This person wasn't relevant to them. And my focus was also this is part of why this poem speaks to me. Um, but but my focus was also on the fact that they could be doing such ordinary things in the face of that. Right? Everything should stop. You know, when mm. something of mm-hmm. such significance happens, and and that's the way it is to lose someone that you love when it's more important to you than to anything else in the world. And in a way it feels like the world should stop and acknowledge what's happened. And yet it doesn't, it just people go on eating and opening windows and walking along and uh, know nothing of it. Hmm. Is that something you've experienced? Yeah, absolutely. When I said at the beginning, when I sort of set this up as being like a poem about world war two, I did, you know, I kind of regret that because I don't, I don't mean this quite so literally, of course. I mean, it was written in in December of 1938. But I I suppose I wasn't really thinking about this on a personal level, oddly enough, though that would be what the poem would want me to think. 
I, I was thinking about it in terms of the historical moment which which is about to happen, which would have people giving up Jews in their own towns or or people living in towns that are right next to concentration camps and not particularly caring what was what was going on there, though it was obvious. And the story told for a long time about uh, people who lived in those nearby towns was that they had no idea what was going on. And of course, that was mm-hmm. later exploded that, of, of course, they knew what was going on. They could at the very least smell what was going on. And so that indifference, I suppose, I placed in that historical moment or maybe even in terms of a large scale alienation that has happened in modern life and that arguably happened, you know, in the Enlightenment or even earlier with the Protestant Reformation, where we have people or at least, you know, people in the West, people in Europe split apart and made alien to each other, almost like this sort of new Babel, where you're no longer united under this concept of, of, you know, the Holy Roman Empire. Now we have competing belief systems happening within the same continent. And that sort of, I think, from there spiraled a lot of other ways in which people became estranged from each other. So I, I suppose I'm, I was thinking of this on this this really vast level. You know, why are we unconcerned with other people's suffering? Like, why are we so self-centered? What about modern life makes us so desensitized to this? And partially it's because, you know, we are just so desensitized to seeing other people suffering. If we stopped and and cared about everybody who was suffering, we would never do anything. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm So especially, you know, with mass media and having it constantly in our faces, you know, we we wouldn't be able to function. So part of that is a useful tool. But I guess, uh, you know, I, I guess I was just thinking about this in terms of these sort of large-scale thoughts about the 20th and 21st centuries and, and how mm-hmm. we got here, I wasn't at all thinking of, of it in terms of the personal, but what you say is, is really true for me. Yeah, well, I think this is one of the ambiguities of the poem, and that's why I started out this way, because I think it shifts in the poem. What mm-hmm. are we talking about here? Are we talking about, I was saying that some of this is written into the human condition, right? Some of this is just about the fact that we're subjects and we don't- right have direct access to other people's subjectivity or that we live in different places. We each have our own position, right? We can't see everything that's going on around us. Or as you just mentioned, we don't have the time or energy if we are to try to fully comprehend all the suffering that was going on in the world. It's not possible. If it were possible, I think it would kill us instantly, right? <laughs> the very yeah. At the very least, it would occupy all our time. And if it occupied all our time, in a sense, it would be way of losing one's life right mm-hmm. we would leave us with with nothing of our own except for that continuing empathy and and living for the the suffering of others so is that what we're talking about or or are we talking about the type of indifference to suffering that i think you're rightly trying to to uh, highlight which is not simply a product of the human condition but it's perhaps a product of cultural forces. It's perhaps a a negative product of what it means to, to be civilized even. But we lose some of our empathy, perhaps, or we are willing, for whatever reason, to repress or suppress our awareness, for instance, that there, there's a concentration camp down the street. So I think you're right, you know, to really be thinking about the, the upcoming war with this and I, that was one of the ambiguities that really struck me about the poem you know because why is he talking about generically about suffering at the beginning right the the painting involves the fall of icarus isn't the painting more about 
ordinary people doing their thing, not noticing something extraordinary, not noticing some extraordinary mythological event? Is it really about suffering per se? That's a really, really interesting way to frame all of this. It's a really original way to start thinking about that painting. That's true. And I guess it's not even a mythological story that I would typically associate with suffering per se. You know, we all know that he he flies too close to the sun and, and then crashes down into into the ocean. Oh, the old hubris story. Right, yeah. right. But it's a it's a story of someone, the lesson of which is that they got what they deserved or or whatever. You know, this isn't this isn't necessarily the story of Philomela or what, one of these famous stories of extreme suffering, Niobe. I don't know why only women can suffer to me in Greek myth, but um other people <laughs> or, or even to imagine necessarily a mythological figure as a figure of suffering, having them be first so far removed and second not real, it doesn't seem very immediate to me, which is maybe what Auden is getting at partially, right? Mm -hmm. um, like it's not immediate to me and therefore it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, well, far this, be it from me to, to, yeah. to downgrade the suffering of people who didn't exist. But anyway. No, no, no. I think that's really important. I think to get from Icarus to suffering in general, to human suffering, we need Christianity as an intermediary right? Mm -hmm. We need another story involving martyrdom. So I think that's the connection. There's a connection between the death of Icarus and the martyrdom of Christ. And that gets us to some of the connections between these different paintings. So the whole thing with the children being at skating at the pond on the edge of the wood and not, you know, they never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course. <laughs> How do we interpret that? I mean, it's an amazing way to think about this to me. The first thing I think of, right, is trying to take a child to church. <laughs> Not that I've, mm. I've done this, I've, but I've been there um, when others have tried to take their children, young children to church and children just being indifferent to it, right? Indifferent to the call to worship, let's say, or to the call to acknowledge sacrifice, um, which is a particular extraordinary type of suffering. And also, of course, like annoyed and grumpy and not wanting to be there at all, actually. But <laughs> so you get an, I think I, there's a kind of hint of that and the, and the children just being at the pond and not taking any notice of, of Mary, for instance, and her arrival. So this is an entirely different aspect of the question of noticing or not noticing suffering, because now we're talking about our, how tuned in we are to martyrdom, right? Am I, am I reading this right? Yeah, yeah. You mean not tuned into it in terms of because it's martyrdom, it demands our attention or we owe our attention to it? Well, I think with the children, the children on the edge of the, edge of the pond, right, are ignoring Mary. Mm -hmm. And this phrase, they never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course, right? So he's, he's attributing to children a knowledge that we wouldn't normally think of them as having there, which is that Jesus is about to arrive, but in the end... He dies and somehow they know this. So the advent is not such a huge deal because at some level they know how it all ends and they would rather just play. Why make a big deal of it, of the arrival of this life when we know it's going to end and they could just play on the pond at the, uh, at the edge of the wood. But part of what's interesting, right, is that they're ignoring something that they're around historically to see. For most of us, even, you know, if we're religious... 
none of that is visible to us, right? The birth of Christ, the death of Christ, these are things that are passed down. They are indirectly available to us. We're cut off in a way that's um, interestingly related to the way the children are cut off. Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. But what I'm trying to say is that I'm trying to get at these two different modes in the poem. One is sort of a general indifference to human suffering, and the other is this indifference either to an extraordinary event, right, with Icarus mm-hmm. falling, or to more specifically to an act of martyrdom in Christ. Right. I, I take that the martyrdom is actually even a little bit more personal to the children than than Christ's martyrdom, because I think it's also related to the massacre of the innocents. So mm-hmm. who are, I, I think that they're often called like the first martyrs for Christ. And so that's why they don't want it to happen too, because Christ has has come into the world or is coming into the world, these martyrdoms have happened. So it, so it, it demands a cost from people that these children don't particularly want to make. But as you say, how would they even know about this or care um, <laughs> or, under, or understand this? Like, oh, this baby's born. And so now, I'm, you know, there's a potentiality that I, as an under two-year-old, are, am going to be murdered the knowledge that this ascribes to these children, like you say, is just, I guess I never thought about this so deeply, but who are these children standing in for? He's ascribing these these feelings to children who, as you say, lived at that time and were contemporaries of Christ. And yet their indifference to what's going on with him almost seems like children now or whenever in the hundreds of years afterwards who don't want to pay homage to this martyrdom. So he's kind of like collapsing all children on top of each other in a way and saying like, this is the condition of childhood to be indifferent to someone's sufferings for you. So maybe this is more of just like a, um, I think of all children as being basically ungrateful people, you know, like they're just, they're indifferent to the, to the sacrifices that their parents make for them or, or anything that's going on. And they, they are, you know, very self-directed and they think of everything as being, for them or about them. So what did the children know about how martyrdom ends that is either unique to childhood or or what is it that he's trying to say about this martyrdom ending? The idea that bad things happen and then you get over it and it's okay and you know, life goes on because I don't think children particularly know that. Right, they don't. And that's, <laughs> that's uh, one of the kind of nice ironies of the poem. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, which is the birth of Christ, there always must be children who did not especially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. These are the children in the um, census of Bethlehem painting. Mary has arrived pregnant, and the elderly or the aged are the ones who are interested in the, the miraculous birth. But to the children, it's not so relevant. So we know, you know, of course, older people do tend to be more interested in religion for obvious reasons and children are less interested in it for obvious reasons. That's why I brought up the whole church thing. But to explain that he attributes to children, a knowledge that they obviously don't have and, or, or maybe they have it instinctively, right? Maybe they have it at some deeper level and that's this idea of martyrdom running its course. So why wait passionately for the miraculous birth? If the foregone conclusion is death, and if the martyred figure passes out of the world, right? Why pay attention to all of this now when 
future generations will not have direct access to that experience. They can know it only through faith, basically. So I thought when reading this, there might be something in here about the nature of faith and um, the way it's cut off from the direct experience of, of martyrdom, even though it's related to, importantly, to martyrdom. Yeah. I, I suppose I'm just thinking about why are the aged reverently, passionately waiting? What's well, because they understand what's going to happen. They understand that even though mm-hmm. the martyrdom is going to happen, they have um, a respect for the seasons of life, perhaps, and therefore maybe more of a respect for the idea that the martyrdom runs its course and things come back around again and that they have more of a sense of the transient quality of suffering. And that's why they would be waiting for the miraculous birth, even though they know that that's, that comes with a death inherent in it as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, I, I, you're just highlighting something which is now like has opened up a wormhole for me because I'm like, I just, I had always taken this for granted that this made sense. But what I'm, th- what I'm realizing now is like when children are, are suffering, they are completely consumed with their own suffering. They don't have a sense that it's going to end, you know? And then when it's over, they're like, oh, okay. And then they move on, you know, they move on from it quickly, but mm-hmm. they don't have a sense of perspective that the aged would have and an understanding that bad things do end and then come up again later, <laughs> you know? Right. So you've blown my mind because of my shallow reading of this poem <laughs> up until this point. I wouldn't call it that, but the aged are actually the ones, right, who know that the martyrdom must run its course because that's why they're interested yeah. in the miraculous birth, right? They're interested in the salvation implicit in it. And to be inf- interested in that salvation, you have to imagine the whole course of birth to death and martyrdom and sacrifice. And so again, that's another <laughs> way in which the the line is so ironic. What does it mean for the children to be not interested because they, uh, they know that the dreadful martyrdom must run its course? It's puzzling, I think. And the best I can do is to say it's almost a more natural position. It's almost more viscerally connected to the fact of martyrdom they don't need to be focused on it per se, or it can show up in daily living, right? So in the same way that the people who are just go along, walking along, doing their thing, the plowmen, so on and so forth, those acts of seeming indifference, this is why I think there's a, such a huge tension in the poem, those acts of seeming indifference can be possibly read as an expression of a kind of faith. There's something mm. about just getting on with things. So this gets into, I think, a very complicated religious question of that we don't need to belabor, but of what it, what the proper relation to martyrdom and sacrifice is and how that manifests itself in one's life. To what extent are you looking up in astonishment as Icarus falls from the sky? And to what extent are you just plowing your field and doing your thing? Which, mm-hmm. which of those things is more a manifestation of faith? Which of those things is more a manifestation of worship? Those, I think, they're the kind of interesting questions this this raises. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. the The way that this dreadful martyrdom line is going to reconcile itself for me is is to just say that this is children attending, you know, a mass or the passion play or something like going. Okay, when is this going to be over so that I can have my candy or whatever, you yeah. know, um, whatever I'm going to be given for sitting through this like a quiet semblance of a person. So I suppose that that would be a an irreverent and an undevout way of attending a mass or you know a, a religious service of some kind blessed are the suffering for they shall get candy 
<laughs> there there <Sorry>. you go. <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> um, they're too young to understand it, and so therefore they're not at fault here for that lack of interest. I suppose what we have to figure out then is between maybe the aged who are at the end of their lives, they're not engaged in in the activities of life anymore, and in an agricultural society certainly, they probably have outgrown their usefulness in a practical way, and therefore can afford perhaps to be um, attentive and uh, and to uh, being concerned with the end of their lives, be a little bit more um, interested in the religious, as you hinted at before. And you have children who are not at all attentive. Therefore, they have no culpability for, for their lack of attention because they're too young to truly understand. So that leaves us with what is then the responsibility of, of the plowman, the shepherd, the, um, the angler, who are in, I guess, now that I think of it, uh, very obviously in their adulthood, in, in their young adulthood, maybe or in the prime of their lives, what is their obligation? And it seems to me that in terms of a, a conception of of prayer or even Auden's own conception of prayer, which I remember reading about, he said something to the effect of, you know, to pray is to actively pay attention to something other than oneself. So the idea that to be Something I want to say something here about the act of paying attention as an act of love, and mm. that tension that you say is is always going to pull on the people who are in in the trenches of life, so to speak, the the people who are are called to the concerns of the world and have demands made upon their time constantly, as we do. And also the demand to pay attention, to give things their due. Because very often to be called to work and to mm-hmm. perform the tasks of one's daily life is also an act of life. Like if we don't pay attention to that, then maybe we can't feed our families or we can't, uh, you know, t- take care of the people around us. So, you know, the answer then is not to like necessarily drop the plow and start helping everyone around you to the extent that you then don't get your work done and then your family doesn't eat. So that I guess that tension is a really interesting one because we want to be we want to be paying attention. We want to be good and active watchers of the religious service or of the the passion play. We don't want to be like children who are just waiting for it to be over, but we also as like active adults can't spend our whole life in church when we have to work or or whatever. This is something I'm really interested in, like the the act of paying attention to people. Mm. And um, was it the Cavell, the King Lear thing? The, the idea of just attending the tragedy? Yeah, it was the tragedy thing. Just attending the tragedy. Mm. I can't think of a more elegant way of putting this. Like, like gives you brownie points. Like you're <laughs> you're um, mm. you know you're doing a good thing by paying attention and being present at someone else's suffering, but truly present, like actually paying attention and being invested in it. But then there's also that idea of the play has to end at some time and you have to go home and feed the cat. What interests me here also is this, the artist's attention to suffering. If we are to draw some parallel to, which it seems pretty clear he wants us to, you know, to, to the fall of Icarus and to Christ, then what in particular is Icarus's sacrifice about? Or is that, you know, is it a bridge too far? Am I... Hmm. <laughs> reading too much into it. But I think the myth is really interesting in that Daedalus is an artist himself, right? Mm. He's a really great artist. He made the maze and, um, and he's not just an artisan, but he's an inventor. He's an innovator. 
he can create these amazing wings, which you can imagine him doing this right for uh, decorative purposes, uh, which would be the ordinary way of being an artisan. But of course, he's doing it to magical effect. Mm. I think there's something in here about the artist. I guess I'm not able to put it very well right now because I haven't fully thought it through. But I was trying to connect it to your idea about paying attention to suffering. I mean, part of what's going on here, we, we, we know, right, that Bruegel is, is poking fun at the typical artistic focus on something dramatic and grand and on that sort of suffering. And maybe by depicting ordinary lives, right, he's, he's saying, well, you should just sort of pay attention to more everyday human suffering, the kind of suffering implied and someone doing their plowing and and then so what is the artist supposed to pay attention to right you know when one could see it as a commentary to the effect that the artist should be uh turning their attention to more everyday things not these grand subjects not these great mythological topics and then um i'm not sure how to relate that to sacrifice exactly but maybe there is some connection mm. So for me, the best part of the the poem, the most charming part, is the dogs going on with their doggy life. And this is related to, I think, another really, really intriguing line. The the sun, or two lines, the sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water. It seems to me that these two things are like, so so animals in the poem are not, they're not complicit in any kind of suffering. Even the the horse of the torturer, it's not doing anything itself. He has an, an innocent behind that he's scratching on the tree and the dog is just doing its its dog thing. And so it would seem that there's this indifference of these animals, which is like almost criminal in a way, even as it's charming, um, that like the torturer's horse is just like whatever. And then the the sun shone as it had to. So that now it seems to me. I, lo I love that, by the way. But get going. Yeah, it's great. Now that seems to me that this this natural world's indifference is actually an obligation. It's obliged to be indifferent to us and to ignore ignore us almost because maybe if if the natural world wasn't indifferent to us, maybe if it stopped to attend us, then the universe would collapse or something. <laughs> or that's really that's that's really interesting. Yeah. So that this indifference is actually part of a, this is where I'm thinking that maybe this is a bridge too far, but almost like the the sacrifice of the natural world is to not care when maybe it should. Explain that because I was actually trying to make this connection between indifference and and sacrifice and even faith. But what are you saying here with the natural world? It's as if the sun doesn't want to just go on shining and not care about um, Icarus or even perhaps that it wanted to shield Icarus from the heat that it was giving off, but it had to sacrifice Icarus to itself or to its own laws, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. This is really mm -hmm. wild, I know. Um, but I, no, no. And, um, I think this is, this is spot on. I mean. and, and then, you know, the, the sacrifice then would be allowing Icarus to die for the sake of maintaining the indifference of this natural world because one can't bend laws or have the the you know the world stop turning or something because one felt a certain kind of pity uh, maybe you know i know this is getting like way into the pathetic fallacy but with Bruegel too it's it's almost as though the because he shows all of these people and they're all so tiny and there's so many of them it's almost as though he's showing the natural world like that the people are part of that natural world too like their indifference is is almost uh, justified in that way because the people are like bugs under a rock or something or they're like they're just part of the ecosystem 
and that that is therefore an extension of the natural world, these people, and that therefore their indifference is sort of like strangely justified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that it seems to me to be a, a almost a, a, the virtue of indifference in their yes. lack of care. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think that's that's excellent. The virtue of indifference, I think that's a very good way of putting it. When I said I love the line about the sun, the sunshine as it had to, you've already put all this very well, but what I love about that is the idea that nature is among the things that's indifferent to suffering, right? So you get a kind of a taxonomy in the poem and in the painting. Mm. Well, really in the poem, you get a, and, and among the three different paintings, you get a taxonomy. So there's the indifference to suffering involved in adults just going about their everyday activities. There's animals, there's children, there's the Ovid's three laborers and or whatever you want to call them in particular. There's artifice, right? There's the ship itself, which the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing. So the ship in a way is personified and it's, it's delicate it's something that emphasizes the fact that it's a product of artistry, mm -hmm. the sort of thing that, that Daedalus might make. And then finally, you get the indifference of nature itself. The sun shone on as it had to. The indifference of the sun, I think, is, as you've pointed out, is about the fact that nature works according to set laws and that we can't expect anything else out of it. And that we ought not to expect anything else out of God. So th this is a this is a big topic in early modern philosophy, and you'll find lots of philosophers who are also religious who who want to argue against the existence of miracles, or at least most miracles. They want to say that God has set up the world to work according to these natural laws and doesn't intervene in a way that there, there's a more subtle conception of intervention in which it's kind of happens before beforehand in a kind of predestination, but doesn't intervene in the sense that he interferes with the laws of nature or makes exceptions for them. This is what for Leibniz, an important part of what makes our world the best of all possible worlds. There's suffering in the world, according to Leibniz, but Suffering is necessarily a part of the best possible world that God could make. And that has something to do with a world which is organized and orderly and functions according to laws of nature and is not simply complete chaos, right? To, to articulate a world and to create human beings and, and everything else necessitates the existence of these sorts of laws. And I bring up Leibniz because his, his, you know, he wrote a book called theodicy and this attempt to sort of justify the existence of a, of suffering in a world created by an all-powerful all-knowing and all good god is a problem for him and the these laws of nature is, plays an important role anyway i'm riffing on your your indifference of nature thing i'm not sure how far i'm getting yeah no that's great i i love what you say about the expensive delicate shift because i think we both looked at that at the same time and both thought like oh those are just like the wings it's just another mode of transportation yes, right yes exactly um yep. yeah and and so then then one wonders okay well uh, icarus was having an awfully good time flying up there that was that was part of the problem <laughs> um was uh that he he liked it so much that he was encouraged to to go higher so so were the situations reversed icarus wouldn't stop flying to help the people 
on the ship, right? And in a way, he's like the children playing at the pond or the dogs in their doggy life doing their play. Right. Yeah. And so, so the idea that this law of the natural world's indifference kind of um, extends to people also, I mean, most importantly of all, you might, you might say it extends to the, I'll call it the moral imperative of indifference that allows us to crucify Christ. So the point is that Christ has to be crucified. He has to be sacrificed. We know this. He knows this. That's the point. So if someone were to save him, if Pontius Pilate chose not to be indifferent, then people would never be saved, you know, according to the mm -hmm. laws of Christianity. So it's almost like it's part of this natural order to be indifferent and, and to murder him. And that allows the necessary sacrifice to happen. So that mm -hmm. that's part yeah. of this, I think, extension of what you're saying of like the orderliness of the world necessitating the suffering. It's almost as though the laws of religion are acting upon the laws inherent in even like the ugliest parts of human nature. It's like the fact that we are bad is the only thing that's going to allow us to become good. Yep. These are the sorts of arguments that someone like Leibniz and other philosophers will make. Yep. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I think that's great. You're making me now think about relating so natural indifference and whatever element of indifference is involved in maybe faith. I don't know. Um, that may be going too far. I haven't thought that through. But to aesthetic disinterest, right? The sense in which we are aesthetic experience is disinterested. It's not focused on gratification in any typical sense, but it's on the focus more on form and representation gratification by by actual objects i mean mm. and then the you know the role of politics for the artist so what what role ought the political to have in the work of an artist and it seems to me like auden was kind of wrestling with that right mm. i'm thinking out loud there i don't have anything more um articulate to say about that that's really interesting i'm really not an auden expert but as he got older, his charity to others was was held very close to his vest. So he he didn't want to let anybody know that he was as nice a guy as he actually was. And he would al almost mm. kind of like play the part of this like mean, indifferent poet or something. It, it was very strange. He, he was a super interesting guy, uh, but he would, he would, you know, perform these acts of service for people and then get really, really mad if they were publicized at all. He tried to do everything in secret. Yeah. It's almost as though he, he sort of realized that this public role that he was playing was so dishonest that he he sort of countered it by going covert. <laughs> like everything with him was a, some kind of like covert operation. But anyway, what you say about his giving up of this public life, I think is is really spot on in terms of the message of the poem, which is uh, mm -hmm. this, at least performing a kind of indifference. Yeah, it's a Bruegelian impulse. <laughs> Sorry to use Bruegel as an adjective, but maybe the, the act of empathy for the artist is to focus on ordinary living, Right. At the very least, it's to focus on the concrete. It's to focus on particular representations. If it's a play or a novel, to focus on particular characters. Whereas the political pulls one towards a focus on groups and on abstractions and on theses about what is just or what is unjust. And one can be drawn towards that sort of suffering, right? The sort of suffering associated with political injustice at the expense of one's capacity to empathize with actual real human individuals. Mm. 
Mm. Um, that's why, for instance, you could think that I'm starting a revolution because I love people and care about them and I'm going to save the world, but I have to break a few eggs right. to get there. Right. And uh, yes, in the meantime, people are expendable. So the question is, how does our empathy manifest itself and how ought it to manifest itself in the arts? But sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, you're just r reminding me of something I read about Auden too, that he said, you know, if the imperative is to love thy neighbor, then he moved away from communism because he said, well, it seems to me that what they're saying is you, we're going to get to a place where you, we can love our neighbor, but for right now, we we have to kill our neighbor <laughs> in order to get to that place where we can love our neighbor. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, yep. that doesn't have much to do with anything, but... Uh, war for the sake of peace. Yeah, or, exactly. <laughs> if we go as far as Orwell, war is peace. Right, right. Yeah. Maybe just by way of wrapping up a little bit. Just the scope of this, I think, is is something that Auden does better than anyone, except for maybe an artist like like Bruegel, in the sense that we're on the Bayou Tapestry or something, and it just goes on and on and on, and it's so large mm -hmm. and vast as to be incomprehensible. But then we're shown a, a portion of it small enough to get a sense of that grandeur without kind of losing our minds. He sort of is performing the work of Bruegel maybe by highlighting this this element of vastness and, and indifference in these little uh, snippets these paintings in a really interesting way. It reminds me of it, one of my favorite poems of his is The Fall of Rome. In 1947, uh, I think it was written for 48, the one that has the famous line about the clerk writing, I do not like my work on a pink official form. Mm. The last <laughs> stanza of that, for some reason, is engraved in my mind. He's talking about the decadence of Rome and, and everything. And then he, the last stanza goes, altogether elsewhere, vast herds of reindeer move across miles and miles of golden moss silently and very fast. And it's just like that kind mm. of sudden shifting to somewhere else or that sudden inclusion of something else on the on the tapestry or a sense that the tapestry is, I don't know why I keep saying tapestry, I should be saying painting. That's a little bit more relevant. But anyway, a sense that- Well, it, you're thinking about the bio tapestry, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just something that yeah. goes on and on forever, like the world. <laughs> yeah. 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 But the sense that uh, even, even the fall of empires is really nothing. All sorts of things are, are still happening on the earth and there could be any number of em empires falling at any number of times. That seems to me right. to be the kind of the message of Bruegel maybe and and part of what Auden is, is getting at here. Like, don't worry about it. This dreadful martyrdom is going to run its course. It's all, all going to be okay. Yeah. Something about life going on and, and life in particular being more important and, and maybe being even the substance, right? Is the substance of a sacrifice myth, the glorification of it, and artistic representation or or do you do more justice to the substance of it in the depiction of the of the ordinary right that's good because that's what it's for the sake of ultimately okay cool i like that and thank you for introducing me to the phrase the virtue of indifference i really like that oh thank you all this and more in my next book where <laughs> I, where I, I probably like reinvent Christian philosophy and act like I came up with it. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for the Partial Examined Life, you're not yet subscribed. You should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, a rating or review would help a lot. You can also find us at subtextpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. To get ad-free episodes and a variety of bonus content, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Bonus content will include our after show, which we're calling Postscript, which consists of an extra 15 minutes of discussion following the regular episode. Sometimes we'll continue talking about the topic for that week. Sometimes we'll discuss what else we've been reading, writing, and thinking about. 
When the time comes, we'll be responding to listener emails, and sometimes we'll talk a little bit about ourselves. Subscribing will also get you the occasional full bonus show and several prequel episodes that I did with various guests. Send your feedback and episode requests to letters at subtextpodcast.com. You'll also find us on Facebook at Subtext Podcast and on Twitter at Enjoy Subtext. And once again, thank you for listening. <laughs>